0: Welcome to Fear the Boot. My name is Dan. My name is Tex. This is Chris. Okay, so let me pause here to explain a couple things, and then I'm going to get to introducing the two other folks on the show. First off, if the sound quality seems a bit different, it's because in order to make this show work, we had to move it to Zoom because we have people in five different parts of the nation on this show. So we have had to go to Zoom, so I do not have for this access to my usual studio setup. The next thing you may have noticed is that two names you've not heard in a while have just showed up on the show, which is old Tex. And he's going to need that name for a reason, because this is Tex who is of course my older brother. And as he was on the show for a stint some years back, those of you that have been with us for a while, remember him. Those of you that haven't been with us that long have probably at least heard me mention his name. And then there is, of course, the omnipresent, at least in spirit, old man Hussie, who is, in fact, like the Titan Kronos. He predates us all and will still be chained somewhere beneath our feet when we all pass away in Olympus Falls. And he's got himself muted because he can't use technology. Go ahead, Chris.
1: No, I was just nodding in silent agreement with what you had to say. I, that seems pretty pretty accurate to me. You're the first person I know who nods in silent agreement
0: with his lips moving while on mute. But <laughs> let's move right along. All right. So joining us today, we've got two additional people. I guess we'll call them new people that are guests joining us, which first we'll go with. I'm just going in the order. I see people in Zoom on my screen. We will start with Ben. Hi. Ben, would you like to introduce yourself, explain a little about who you are, because you're probably the most qualified person on here.
2: Sure. So outside of the Battletech realm that you guys are me be talking about tonight, I've been writing for 25 years professionally. Um, I've done journalism, communications, social media, video production, all kinds of stuff. My battlework is communications. But as far as Battletech goes, so I am best known for the 70 plus products that my fingers have had some manipulation in since two thousand and one through two thousand and sixteen I was a play tester for fasa in from nineteen ninety six on until they fell. I worked with WizKids kids in their quality assurance and play testing area as a volunteer i've done um some side stuff there was a thing with Pinnacle that MechWarrior was supposed to be doing that I was involved with that never made it off the table. So there's a lot of stuff. But I guess people who most play Battletech probably recognize my name, mostly tied with Herb Beas, um the line developer. And I was the assistant line developer for eight years. And we pretty much manhandled the Jihad storyline, as well as managed the merging of the WizKids timeline with the reconstituted Battle Tech, classic Battle Tech, whatever you want to call it, tech timeline. That when I left was right before ilkland So that entire period was um, a large part, Herb, in my doing. So I had a, a huge hand in creating and writing and producing and, and managing all that stuff. So that's where people will probably recognize my name from. You flip open any almost any project book or digital print publication between 2001 and 2016, and you'll see my name somewhere in there.
0: And then the other person joining us is NewTex. Yeah, that would be me. Yes, who also has the distinction of being one of the few people alive who has a voice lower than mine without the use of any synthesizers, or at least I assume he's not using a synthesizer. I am a 14-year-old girl. So I'm referring to him as NewTex, first off, because we have two Texas on the show, as unlikely as that is. And nobody knows my brother by his actual first name. So why bother using it? But if you recognize the voice of Newtax, where it is probably from, is he is the narrator host. What do you call yourself?
3: I am the writer, researcher, narrator, host. And uh, co-scorer, co-editor of Text Talks Battle Tech. Text Talks Battle Tech. Okay, so
0: that's a YouTube show. So if you're interested in getting some focused Battle Tech love, which you've, if you've not guessed, is what you're about to get here. But if you can't get enough of that, be sure to check YouTube for Text Talks Battle Tech, and I will provide you with a link to that. Choose ben? a good episode, please. <laughs> well, what episode should I choose? What what episode should people start with? I'm asking for two. First Took off, I... one for people who are into battle tech, Tukian. Tukiad for people who are into battle tech. Everybody that's... loves the clanners getting a battle. But which one would you pick for someone
3: who's not into battle tech to start with? What do you think? I would a... absolutely send them to the Mackie. Mike and I came together, and we said, "The Mackie man." That's that's Genesis. And he goes, yeah, what was Battletech like in the 80s? I said, oh, man, it was straight up crazy in the 80s. And he goes, yeah. And I said, what if we made an 80s episode? So everything's synthwave music. Everything's bright neon. Everything has that garish accent to it. Um, even the art design for characters that we had commissioned. We were like, nah, 1980s then. What we're going to talk about today, since we've got a mix of people here
0: that are involved of Battletech at a variety of creative roles and capacities, or in the case of me and old techs, have been previously involved in the creative thing, is about the intersection Of real life realities, whether they are personal, whether they are business or marketing related, along with the game products and the stories and such that actually make it to print. So how the real people and their stories affect the games that you are playing, because if somebody asks you what Battletech was like in the 80s, that means they don't know. And you have to one up them by saying you mean what was battle droids like in
3: the 80s? Well, that's fair. That's fair. I just wanted to give it its appropriate countenance from what few memories I have of those. Yeah, early and,
4: and the source books of that era, especially the, the black and white interior artwork, just has a certain style to it. I'm not sure how else to describe it. Oh, it, it is it's,
0: outstanding. It's, have you ever seen the single greatest piece of Battletech artwork? It's from the 80s. It's this dude in a denim jacket. I mean, it really looks like a bad album cover. It does uh, if you Maybe. yeah, okay But the fact that you you know what I'm talking about you didn't no, know I'd, that they,
3: they all look like surreal art or they look like someone was drawing a shadow run character and they were like hey this is for the battletech thing and you start to race in the ears like there was <laughs> like so for no reason you'd see like a guy with a long bow and a guy with a mace and a guy wearing scale mail and then they'd like drew in a pilot on the end and they were like this is a battletech picture now. Yeah.
0: So and- <laughs> I, I'm stuck to a, a headset right now, so I can't move around. Otherwise, I would love to give a page number from the Shadowrun second edition rules book because there's one picture where I would bet all the money I have, have had, or ever will have that what this guy did was drew his role playing group as yes. a group of shadow runners. And that was the picture. I mean, it's it probably is yeah. Tim
2: Bradstreet. It's probably a Tim Bradstreet piece, too.
3: I think there, it actually was a Bradstreet yeah, piece. Because like that's what he are, did. There are a series of photos of four dudes standing around. And in my gaming group, we call it, quote, me and the boys. <laughs> and there's so many of these four guys standing around in Shadowrun and in Battletech. We've noticed it'll be like four guys on a gantry with a dropship in the background, or me and the boys. When we were doing the art review with George Ledoux, we just kept realizing it's like, ah, it's another goddamn me and the boys photo.
0: Well, the other one that we keep finding, I can't remember who drew it, is what we called Cool Cruising J-Wolf or Jaime Wolf, if you prefer. Um, I've actually heard even the people that write the character pronounce it both ways, so I don't know what the correct one is. Well, didn't
4: the Battletech Brain Trust get together a year or two ago and decide, like, the official pronunciation for a lot of these things? Because, like, is it Davian or Davian?
0: Yeah, or is it Marik, Marik? Drew or Drow? Yeah. But if you look through the Battletech source books, there are all these pictures of the exact same guy who looks exactly like how they drew Mr. Wolf, whatever you care to do with his first name. And he's always just in these random shots driving around oftentimes in a car, completely oblivious to whatever is occurring in the background. Like there can be hell on earth unfolding, but here is this same guy just whooshing past in the foreground and we could never make any sense of it. And so we just came up with our own head canon for that art that Jane Wolf is just an utterly out of his mind, oblivious lunatic who, truth be told, doesn't have any clue what's occurring in the
3: universe? Well, all he That's has cool to do guys, is cool guys.
1: Cool guys don't look at explosions. I mean, yeah, and
3: you know, you you do a rail or two of that as battle powder, and you know, suddenly <laughs> the war zone's really exciting. So, Ben, when, what was the first time that
0: you actually? Who, well, who had them when you first saw their offices? The
2: first experience that I ever had with any of the quote unquote big bigwigs at the time, we were denizens of virtual world on North pier all the time. And I did not know this at the time, but when my team, my league team met, we were actually playing with and palling around with Mort Wiseman and Sam Lewis and, you know, these, these creators. And I had probably Randall too, as far as I know, we had no idea. We were just, you know, a bunch of college kids just totally engaged in in this met comment, which is what brought me back to, Reintroduced me back to Battletech because I played it in the 80s during high school. So, you know, when I got involved doing playtesting, that was from a distance. And then the WizKids connection, the FanPro I mean, FanPro was based in Germany. At the time, the publisher and line developer was out of Germany. I've never actually seen an office from any of the iterations who's owned any of the IPs, actually. So, yeah, all my stuff has been basically remote.
4: Have you guys seen there was a documentary on YouTube that came out somewhat recently that talked about virtual world? And uh, one of the things that I was really fascinated to learn is, you know, my, my brother and I had also gone to to virtual world on the North Pier in Chicago because we lived in St. Louis at the time. And so we went up there and, you know, spent all our, our allowance there. And, uh, you know, it seemed so high tech and so polished and so fancy. And then, to, you know, to realize that behind the scenes, they were literally making it up as they went. And, and some of that stuff was literally handcrafted.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. It was, just, it was just amazing. Those pods, I think it was really cool. Cause it was the immersive aspect of it. I mean, at the time, you know, video arcades, the, the old star Wars pod through the, the wireframe, you know, yeah. Death Star trench run. That I love that. That was that, always in that one.
1: That game was one of the sit down version of that game. Easily yeah. one of the best arcade games ever made. Just, yeah. just a riot from start to finish. And, yeah. and even if you were successful and you restart the mission again, it was still just, as much fun as the first time.
2: And I remember at North that the virtual world was a big thing, but that they had the Dactyl Attack, which is like the true first VR immersion because that had the helmet, yes. you stepped in the ring, you had the, the trigger hand thingy. And I played that a lot too. And that the dactyl attack was just pretty cool. But then virtual world was right outside of that. And then the fact that it was a pod and it was a simulator, and the fact that you were actually playing the first multiplayer you were playing against, you know, your friends and and these strangers and every icon on there was controlled by a person. That was like the beginnings that that we started to see that later on, you know, morphed into take for granted now with multiplayer, uh, you know, online. So it was just that whole novelty aspect. Plus, it was just giant robots with guns. And we had war stories after and we would make missions up if they didn't give us stuff. And that whole imagination immersion just really fed who I am because I'm very much a creative type. And that just really got me, got me rolling from there. So
4: yeah. And
0: dactyl attack. Do you other... want
4: to describe this to people? Yeah. All right. Let me back up. All right.
0: Yeah. All right. Let me explain what dactyl attack was. All right. Yeah. For anyone that was not a 1980s mole rat, as Tex put it here just a second ago. It was a as Ben said, it was a one of the very early, if not the earliest virtual reality video games that was available outside of a concept stage at a consumer level where you could walk in somewhere play. Once again, if it wasn't the first, it was very, very early. in this. It
4: was the very first thing I ever laid hands on personally.
0: Yes. And they actually not only had those at virtual world in Chicago. I'm sure they were in other places. They also did exist down here in St. Louis. There was an arcade called, I believe it was Acclerama that had them. And I don't know if, it, if they bought the units off of the same company or where they got them from or what the distribution was like, or, or if they bought them used. I have no idea where they came from, but they eventually showed up down here. And what it was is you would stand in a circular railing. So you'd stand like on a little platform. And there'd be these metal rails around you to keep you from walking off. And I also don't know to what extent they did motion tracking or had cameras. I just I just don't recall. You would put the VR headset on and you had these like arc firing guns. Like you really couldn't shoot directly at much because they shot up like an artillery piece. They'd come back down and there would be four other people on an open playing field of sorts. It was... It's kind of hard to explain, but it's like a bunch of like stairs and platforms and whatever. But then there was this pterodactyl that all joust-like, I realize I'm dating myself there even further back, would come down and would attack everybody and be everybody's problem while you were trying to fight each other. And there was a follow-up game that was made later to that that was a virtual reality sit-down Mech simulator. Now, this was not Battletech. This was something else. I'm right. guessing they took the concept but didn't have the intellectual property rights or something. But they did make a full virtual reality sit down mech on mech combat sim. Now, mm-hmm. what we're talking about though at Virtual World for these Battletech pods was they're, I guess they're more like like fighter simulators.
4: Yeah, because with the others, you actually put like a bucket on your head that had like a seven-inch TV in it. And with, with the Battletech pods, you didn't actually put something on your head. It was more you were sitting in the simulator.
0: Yeah, yeah, you sat down. There was a screen in front of you. A fairly broad screen, but it was a screen nonetheless. And if you're a more advanced player, they had like switches going across the top. And then you had like a joystick with some buttons on it, a throttle some buttons on it. And then there was like a number pad, like you would see on a telephone, but it was used for punching in codes to override mech mm. shutdowns and things like that. And they would close you in this pod. And, you know, as was just described, it was the immersion of it that really was so captivating that. You know, Even having played substantially more sophisticated games uh, on both my home computer and my Oculus Rift S sitting over there, I think there is still something even more immersive about actually having your physical environment change as opposed right. to simply having the illusion of change.
4: Yeah. Well, and that was kind of my first aha moment that got me to kind of want to revisit my childhood a little bit and kind of start stitching this together. Is you know, Battletech also has a very deep history and lore and canon that's, you know, just as deep as, as almost any other sci-fi, you know, major property. And so I remember watching this documentary about virtual worlds, and they mentioned offhandedly that, oh, yeah, you know, there's only so much video memory, and we only had so much room to store wireframes. So the mechs had to have interchangeable arms and legs. And so they were like, a few arms and a few legs and a few torsos, and we had to swap them up to make all the mechs. And I was like, "Oh, that's why the clans have OmniMax because the Clan Invasion in the the BattleTech story tabletop world was introduced as a product at about the same time that the virtual world centers and the BattleTech centers came out." And I was like, "Oh, I understand how a technological limitation at the BattleTech center." led to a business decision, which led to a fiction decision to canonize Omnimax.
2: As you're saying, you realize there are only four. You know what the first original four were, right? Thor, Loki, Vulture, Bedcat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Those were the only four that you could pick. They had four versions of each that you could use. And each four version, they weren't lettered. It was long range missile, uh, <clears throat> brawler, sniper, and jack of all trades. You would plan out your missions. Here's your objective. But the, I love the vulture and just the missile spam that it would give. And I absolutely loved being the fire support. That, that's typically any game that I play these days. I'm a fire support. So but yeah, that was the original four. And I remember because I had just gotten back to the game and they had the plastic cast pieces in the box, the box that you could buy at Virtual World of All the Max. And I bought a couple of those that I carried with me up to you know when I moved. I had them up until probably about a couple of years ago and I gave them to a a friend's daughter for her birthday. But you're right. You know, that's the story I've heard too secondhand is that the pod idea from Virtual World then moved into the canon, which helped build this entire new technological base for the clans, which made sense and blah, 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 blah. You know, and on
0: out from there. But um, if if I'm not mistaken, the the pods also, and I think you're starting to talk about this, codified mm -hmm. something other than the appearance of clan mechs which is how all mechs were piloted, yeah. which which is the use of a throttle and a pair of pedals to control leg movement, and then a free joystick with three buttons on it that created the three firing groups of the battle mech and was used to control the torso and arm movement. And Mm -hmm. if a weapon was torso mounted, it would simply lose its reticle at a certain point And then the reticle for the relevant arm would continue on for another 60 or however many degrees past that. But that later then gets described in the novels, because one of the things as a as a kid and then a teenager reading these books, you know, it's look, we're gamers. We self insert on everything we do. I would always want to picture how is a mech piloted? And there was no consistent description until there was a certain point in history. And I first remember seeing it around the time of the Blood of Kerensky trilogy. And it may have been in a book before that, that I just don't recall, where they started describing this setup where you had the switches going across the top, the throttle on the left hand, the pedals for right and left foot to control steering, the... Uh, joystick with the free firing groups for weapons and all of a sudden i could make a cogent picture of it and by the yeah. time that i first sat in one of those pods it was like a boomerang that knowledge came back so i went from the novels to sitting in one of the pods and already knew how to pilot the pods by virtue of the pods having been described and abstract in the novels
2: one of the cool things too is that they gave us the actual spec's for the the, each of the units. So like we knew how many seconds you had for reloads. And so we would actually on the drive from Northern to North pier, we would actually plot, okay, take this weapon load out because we know that this time you can spam X. This was like back when people started to know, like, you know, FPS and all that, how many shots you can shoot, you can do in 30 seconds. You know, you're going to run in sprint for count to 10 and then, you know, fire off everything back up because it's going to take X amount. of. Because we had definitive times in real world timing, how long it would take to dissipate heat, um, how long the missiles took to recharge in the computer, you know, all that stuff. And it was just I mean, it was mind boggling that that type of strategy that I see. It's like commonplace now. But back then it was like a novel thing. And that was like an entire hour's car ride figuring out that strategy and then coming back with the war stories after that. It was just, it was awesome. Well, do you
1: it, still it, have, you still, do you still have your, uh, your, your manual, your booklet from the yeah. uh, future world? Oh my, Man, I do. I do. And it's yeah. pristine.
4: <laughs> well, here, here's the story. <laughs> I my hat. Hear, cause it, I, cause I was, remember watching some episodes of text talks battle tech and I was just completely enamored that like, you know, the American civil war could be like three solid hour documentary. Like I was just, blown away by like the fact that somebody would turn that into a three hour documentary. When I remember it, you know, being five paragraphs in a source book.
3: I, I did some digging and I I will say this. My first draft was easily six to eight hours. And my editor, uh, no, my, my editor was like, okay, no. (laughs) So I I would sit through that. I may revisit it
0: (laughs) just for him. Yeah. (laughs) Here's, here, here's the just for old text. Here's the, six, the full eight-hour direct-to-Snyder cut of the Amorous <laughs> <Everest> Coup.
4: <laughs> but what got me thinking is uh, I was watching Michael Todd and Travis Gardner had gone and, and grabbed some of the, the OG people from FASA and watching text talk about you know the the, the rich history and lore and canon of it and, and realizing that I had this aha moment where like, oh, the mech pods created Omnimex in the canon. And so I was wondering what other things in the real world created fictional world canon. And like if the three big inflection points in Battletech's history are the Clan invasion, the Jihad, and the Dark Ages. And so I was curious what was going on in the real world with the real companies with intellectual property around the time that those three major things happened.
0: So I'm going to obviously punt that one to Ben, Old Man Hussey, and New Because I would just for no other reason, I want to hear New Tech's talk more. But <laughs> he's being way too polite on this show, which means he's just, he's effectively a consumer.
3: Um, no, I, it's, it's been a long day. It's just one of those things where at the end of the day, your brain tries to start going to sleep early. So you have to fight it with caffeine and, in this case, conversation. It's the two of you that have the voice for radio, not me. I got the face <laughs> for radio to back it up. <laughs>
2: Okay. So you're talking about the three different inflection points. So I was there for roughly two of them. You know, everyone knows 2000 FASA folds and then WizKids takes the license and they create an entirely new game. So one of the cool things is because I was, you know, on the the alpha and beta teams for playtesting, we got to see the lore bits that they were adding to like the glossary stuff. And we would like parse that for information. And of course, we were NDA, so we couldn't really, you know, say anything. So we were very tight because we very much valued our jobs as playtesters. And, you know, you leaked anything out on any bulletin board anywhere. You were immediately cast out and that was it. You'd never get to work to do that stuff again. So we were always working within our groups and just geeking out. So that's where we learned about this time jump forward all the way up to thirty-one, thirty-two. I think was the first Sack Bowl short story, that there was this entire change and there was no explanation as to what happened. And we had this new Dark Age because they wanted to separate the time out. They wanted to divorce what everyone knew as the old game to this new game because it was a completely different game dynamic. It was going to a completely different audience. The aim was, you know, at this new clickable miniature game, tabletop, fast game, 45 minutes, you know, that kind of thing, speed run. And WizKids wanted to separate that canon and that universe, like with a, a hard chop with the thirty at the time, thirty sixty seven was the break point, the static point. So, you know, they would have some throwback bones that they would tie back to the other, you know, like using like Centurion, you know, the, the name Centurion and, and some of the old unit names. But they were really trying to forge their own way with this new dynamic but the backlash was really bad. And that that's partially because, and I speak as a marketing communications professional, WizKids marketing at the time absolutely sucked. I mean, it was just awful. They had no plan on on how to build this stuff out. They had no plan on introducing all of it. They were just going to drop it into the market and hope that the casual play base would run with it. And that's what they did. Now, I will say, caveat, I was not in, involved in internal meetings with WizKids. This is all stuff that I've gleaned from various developers and artists and whatnot who have worked on the projects. So this is all technically second and partially third-hand material, but this is what I've just kind of assembled what's happened. So if there's like Kelly wants to come in and contradict me, I have no problems with that. But basically what happened that that's where that first split happens. So the dark age comes from this entire dynamic of whiz kids wanting to chart its own course, but they realized very quickly that it was a very bad idea because they had a ready-made player base that I think the old Faz employees like Randall, who was working for WizKids, argued that there is a ready-made fan base that they could tap into that they were currently pissing off. And it just makes that climb harder when you're dropping a new game. in if you're excluding this entire segment, no matter how small or niche it might be. Did the it's players still a carry buying-
4: over? Because I remember after college, I moved away and was kind of away from Battletech for a while. And then when I moved back, I started snooping around on the internet for Battletech. And I found this little clicky base thing. And I was like, what? Yeah. And so I'm curious. I mean, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but just from my business perspective, how many of the FASA Classic Battletech customers started playing clicky bass.
2: I honestly don't know. I know anecdotally, in my area in Pittsburgh, we had three big battle tech groups. And two of them sort of adopted into playing clicky tech. Part of the reason was me and a couple of other star players from the Steel City Mechworders, we went out and actively, we really made campaign stories and we really tried to bring a, a fun campaign dynamic to these games. WizKids organized play really tried. I honestly don't know how much of a rollover was. I know that there was animosity all across the boards, the various forums and whatnot. There was just a lot of angst. And that's why somehow, when somebody spoke up, and I'm guessing it was Randall, convinced WizKids that they really needed to continue to bridge that gap. They needed to bridge 3067 with 3132. And they really needed to start putting out material to get people to that point because they needed to get that old guard buy-in because otherwise they were going to, drop that entirely and stick with their own thing and if people never made another book for it they were going to continue doing it and there are games like that that have followings Uh, renegade legion is one of those i see that game hasn't had anything printed in almost 30 40 years there are people out there who still come up with their own stuff for i mean there's fan bases that do all that stuff
4: yeah i mean i like starfleet battles is technically still in print but i don't know that the game's been significantly updated in in decades but there are people that still just play the heck out of it
2: Yeah, and so that was the danger: is that WizKids realized late that they were going to lose that entire niche market that could easily buy, even if they just bought the clicks to paint them or to repaint them. It was easy to pop them off the. I took a bunch of, popped them off the thing, and I used them in my my actual BattleTech games because you know some of them you could do that with. So that's where that break happened, and then they got FanPro to come in to buy the license because FanPro in Germany. The German license is a completely different thing. That's why you have German novels, which are completely out of whack with the official English canon. So there's two different divergence there, but FanPro is wanting some of the uh, original content there. So they were interested in producing this stuff for the English market. And so that's where they contracted for the the print sprites to do all this print product. So we had this two, three, three three-year lull in 2000 and 2003, I think, so... Dawn of the Jihad was the first print product to come out that would actually make an attempt to explain the beginning of this gap.
4: Okay so, okay, so the Jihad was really introduced as a retcon to explain that, like, okay, we were here, we jumped 60 years into the future, and now we have to start filling in what happened in this 60-year gap?
2: Yes and no? Yes okay. and no,
1: yeah.
2: Okay, so the Jihad was actually... Here. So Faza actually was going to have a Comstar revolt. That was in the plan. And yeah, no, I, I have that.
1: I know that only because you mentioned the 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 meals, Dan, where all the, the Fasa people would sit around and stuff. I, I got to be at a couple of those in the mid nineties. And yeah, before Fasa folded, the I was given a document that was going to lay out everything that was going to happen in regards to the Comstar Revolt, the Jihad. And it didn't tie it into Dark Age because obviously that had not come about yet. But that plot line was laid out to a certain extent as to how that was going to go.
2: Yeah. So all the books and and all the material was leading to that point. They had already known that that was where they were going. And if Faza had held on to the license, turn of the year, you would have seen these major events start to happen. So it was weirdly, so we're talking about real life and things in the in the game. The inflection points you have are really good, but a lot of misconception that still exists today, but to much lesser extent now, is that the jihad was named because of 9-11. And that wasn't the case. It was just an unfortunate circumstance. The jihad was named the jihad back in the, I think, the 90s that document that Chris talks about Herb seen it and that's where the naming was from and there was actually a hard discussion do we continue forward with this name and it it still carried the context of the Comstar Holy War and it was the I mean that was the nomenclature that worked and it was an unfortunate you know tie to real life in that sense but and funny side story both Herb and I got extensive background checks because of our work with Battletech and the Jihad stuff When I went to work with the Spy Museum in DC, they did an extensive background check. And I got questioned about it several times by CIA and FBI agents who were tied to the museum that were hired to do the background checks. And that was a fun conversation. So, but yeah, so the jihad thing was just an unfortunate context, but that's where that all came from. That was an actual plan from the start. So what Randall did was take that as the starting point. And then we did not plot jihad to... 3032 in one go. To be honest, that was a year by year thing. Every book that we were putting out, we spent a year ahead of time. So, Dawn of the Jihad came out in 2003. So, 2002 was plotting out 3067, 3068. Then the next book was 3070. That was plotted out the year prior before it came out. So, we started building this timeline document. We had events in there that never got covered. When Herb left and I had the first iteration of Oakland ready to go, uh, almost ready to go before things happened, the timeline document was over 350 word pages. It was massive because we were plotting everything out to mid- so everything made sense. And the reason why the stories felt so connected and so deep is because we spent time working with our writers to make sure that if you're mentioning this, we have to make sure that we're having a Chekhov's gun moment. Years back so that we can set this up right. We were doing all of that. And then no matter what product was coming out, whether it was a tiro entry that was mentioning one pilot with one incident, we had to make sure that that was tied somewhere. And you can imagine I was doing that for war, the eventual. So Wars Reaving is its own story. That was the book I knew I was going to write nobody told me I was going to write it. I knew I was going to write it because I was insistent on it because I was the only clan cheerleader at the time. Uh, So I was making sure that all the clan stuff I was keeping track of so that when we got to the eventual point where I could actually write the book, which for a long time was never going to be written, I had everything laid out so that it was just, you know, I was taking all the stuff that I had laid out in the different books and all the tidbits and Easter eggs and everything else. And all that was folded into this massive Campaign book that that eventually got released. That's why it was so popular because I learned a lot of lessons playing, you know, role playing games and working with her was a huge bonus because he was a master at weaving all this stuff together. And so that we basically filled that gap. That was the inflection point from the thirty sixty seven break with Fazit because that's the Fazit break and the low for four years, and then all the way out to thirty one thirty two when we finally got to the Dark Age. Which they just now moved way past that. And that inflection point of 3150 was supposed to be for a new iteration of the game, which has not happened. And that's another story in and of itself. But that was where we were working toward is this another inflection point of an entirely new whatever it would look like. That's where we were going. Um, so
4: let, let's jump forward a little bit in the real world then. So at some point Clicky Tech goes away. It's no no one's making Clicky Tech BattleTech anymore. And so now BattleTech is back to quote classic BattleTech. That's the only tabletop game now. When the product line changes and when the product line pivots back from Clicky Tech to classic BattleTech, did that influence the fiction or the canon or
2: the story? So what it meant to us to Herb and I was that we suddenly didn't have to conform to stuff that WizKids was putting out because WizKids would still put out dossiers and little tidbits on the website about stuff. And the good thing is, is they had people writing that stuff like Randall and contracted freelancers who had Battletech experience and knowledge of the canon. So they were actually able to tie that. I, I shudder to think if they had some rando guy who didn't know anything about it, writing that stuff, because we would have to go through an inordinate amount of hoops to try to convolutively make this stuff canon. And we had already spent several years building the jihad through our product that we wanted to make sure that we finished that. We had conversations like this. So what do you think about having a Bob Newhart moment where Victor Davian wakes up and looks at ISIS and says, man, I had the really weirdest dream. I really need to stop eating Lao bao buns before I go to bed. Because I'm really glad he didn't do that. No, because I think if it would have been disingenuous because to be honest, the loudest people were the minority of who hated it because we've been writing such good story and campaign. We really wanted to lean into that. So we made the choice, I think for good, although some would argue for ill, to move forward with that. So what that actually allowed us to do was to be a little bit more free. There, There was no more whiz kids oversight as far as like sticking to certain things like this faction has to come into play. So you have to build the seeds for that faction. So Steel Wolves is a good example. Um, we had to make you know allowances to that so that that faction would plausibly come about. And we didn't have to do that anymore. We didn't have to worry about them putting in tidbits about the fall of Terra in some weird way. This character of Stone is a good example. We, they never came up with a backstory for him. They just said, Dublin Stone sounds like a cool name. Let's use that. And we came up with convoluted backstories that worked for that. And we actually leaked three of those theories in some of the books that we did. So we had more freedom. So what that actually allowed us to do is more product that catered more to what we wanted to write Battletech for. And we had no restraints as far as what that future hookup. We still knew that we had the 3132 to thirty-one, forty to that 10 year period we had to work towards because that was still set in stone by the product and books and stuff that WizKids had put out. We still had to work towards that, but that was our goal. And now we had a much more open road to get there. And what that allowed us to do is WizKids said, you're not talking about the homework clans. That's not in our product vision. We're not going in that direction. Just ignore it. We don't want any of those factions in play. And so our canon reason was they went silent and, you know, there's some horrible war, some, third rate marketing person called it the war of Reading. had no idea what he meant by that, but he just threw that in there in the early glossary. And that's what we had to deal with. And so we stuck with that. And then now all of a sudden those gates were gone and we had like this open tunnel that we could run through. And that's when I started pushing to have wars of Reaving come out because now we could tell that story, but Be- we're not beholden to the limitations that were set before. Now we could tell that story. And that's where we had the freedom to put that out and I had the freedom to completely set up the fall of Terra in total chaos, which you know details the Jihad War all the way to the to the fall of the Master, the invasion of Terra, which was awesome for me to be able to plot out and do those things we couldn't have done before, and now we could do them, and that's what allowed us to to play with that. So, so real world implications of like losing the license or having license limitations, and a company's like projected goal of what they wanted. So. You know, we're going back to WizKids. This is the game they wanted to to sell. This is the nebulous backstory they had for it. They allowed us to make those connections. And then when they took the game away and stopped putting the novels out, it gave us free reign to run the rest of the way through to make that connection and then go past that. So, you know, inflection points in the real world really do have an implication on how product stuff hits. And, you know, it's funny. People complain, well, you did the, you know, the, the watching the conspiracy theories or just, you know, the conjecture about this, that, and the other. And there's a lot of times we can't see anything because we're under contract, you know, NDA, not to talk about stuff. And I mean, I saw stuff, oh god, I saw stuff in the playtest notes back in 2001 that just sent us out the window because they were just, we're like, who wrote this stuff? They obviously have never played this game before. And now they have got like these word of blake ghost machines and you know, they wanted to have tripods in the vein of War of the
3: Worlds. Right. Oh, and yeah. I remember those. I was like, what the hell?
2: Well, at least at least we got it to, like, super heavy as opposed to these bizarro. They wanted, like, the full tilty. Oh, God, it was strange. My
0: yeah, I'm, I'm going to kick this one over to New Text because I, I want to hear more about these tripods because I only <laughs> became aware of them when they became... They came out as the super heavies, and I even recoiled a bit at super heavies because FASA for decades, and while in the companies in the middle for decades, had resisted. I mean, there was this kind of big munchkin group that wanted 110 ton or a 200 ton mech, and they were always told no.
2: That really goes back to what old Tex was talking about inflection points. WizKids wanted a big, heavy tripod, big base plate unit. And it didn't matter what Faz's vision, they didn't know Faz didn't own the IP anymore. It was WizKid's IP to do whatever they wanted with. And they wanted that. So it became our job to figure out how to make these come into life within the canon uh, but, constraints that we had.
0: So this is a bit cynical on my part, and I may be asking you to conjecture a bit cynically, <laughs> but do you think the 110 ton mechs were allowed because of the fact that they necessitated a higher dollar product?
2: knowing what I know about marketing and business practice. Yeah. It makes sense that they, you know, they were looking for the next level of things. They were trying so many different things. They tried Merc team units. Remember the, I call them the devastator set, but it's the arena mechs that were purple and yellow and just, um, God, the, the Gravedigger and all that weirdo Solaris mechs that they wanted to have a Mad Maxi bad-ass grouping that they could sell four mechs in to use because they were finding the squadron sets for Crimson skies was working. So they wanted to do that here. And people were griping about the blinds. They didn't want to do blind draws. They wanted to see what they were going to get. And that's where that comes from that I'm almost positive. The three tripods they did was built because they wanted something different and cool and not set to the old ways that would like show that they're moving forward with things. And so we had to find ways to justify it. We had no say and we can't do that. Didn't matter. It was their IP you know, you either get with a program or you don't write for them anymore. And, you know, that's what it came down to. So we had to find ways to justify. And we took a lot of heat because people think that the writers just decided they were bored and wanted to come up with this. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's a market thing. And sometimes you just, if you want to get paid and want to do that work and continue writing in the universe, this is what you have to do. so that's, the, that's what we did. I personally didn't have a problem with it. I love special ops and secret projects. I have a neighbor who works for an alpha pit. Agency that begins with a D, so that kind of stuff's always really cool to me. And I had no problems you know, diving into it. Now, trying to figure out how they walk and all that stuff, <laughs> leave me alone. I didn't necessarily like the tripod. I actually advocated for a centaur type setup, where four legs is a quad. Take the Serac and then slap uh, the torso of a of a medium mech on top, like a Phoenix, and call it a day. I mean, that would be that's ace in my book. But you know, what do I know?
0: <laughs> Yeah. So one of the things that, of course, always comes up whenever you have, especially large teams of people working on a product, I'm not going to speak to this in terms of recent Battletech stuff out of, well, one, because out of respect for Ben, but also because, two, I will fully admit I stopped following the fiction somewhere in there. But you certainly uh, have no problem finding this in the older stuff is where internal consistency starts to break down. Because there are this many people working on it, they invariably contradict each other or come up with different explanations for the same event. And sometimes you can handle that in, you know, hand waving sort of ways of, well, it's like the real world, you know, nobody exactly has the same version of events, even if they were physically present for them. But NewTex, as the unofficial Ken Burns of Battletech, what do you do with that?
3: You know, you have to understand, it's really, really wild for me to look at the diaspora of created content around a common theme, especially when it's done the shotgun method. A really good example of that would be like Star Wars. You look at Star Wars, and they got into this extended universe where they did young teen book, they did adult books, they did comic books, they did video games, they did all this stuff. And then it gets all over the place, and they have to go, okay, well, what do we do with it? you've got a hundred writers who've written a hundred storylines and a hundred era and you have to kind of weave it all together. So and what is Canon? Exactly. You, you have to have someone with a stick go through and go, this is good. This is not. And so my favorite eras of battle tech are like 30, 52 or inner. And I did play through the Fedcom civil war and I thought that was okay. But as times got accelerated, I had a lot of stuff going on in my life at the time. I couldn't play Battletech much do anything else other than, you know, keep my ass alive. One of those, you know, hard times of my uh, youth. And when I came back to Battletech, it was clicky. And and that completely blew my mind. I said, what had happened to this company? And all I got were, you know, little snippets from fellow game store friends who had said, oh, I heard this happen. Oh, I heard that happen. On this internet web board, I I heard this was the real true story behind the scene. It was kind of weird flying through the flotsam of your childhood and finding something else that had inhabited its skin and wanted me to buy clicky tech. It was... um,
4: (laughs) I love that metaphor.
3: It Mm. just felt wrong. It was was a simulacrum. It was a a created simulation of something that never was. And I found myself just kind of lost in that period. But when when it comes down to tripods, my head just goes because I happen to know a lot about the industrialization of warfare, what I have a degree in. And so one of the things that I always made headcanon is wire mechs in certain sizes and wire mechs have classifications. Well, they have a load lift. It's like moving stuff on and off of the roll-on, roll-off ship. It's like moving tanks onto a train. Tanks can't be a certain size, otherwise they will hang off the real car and won't go through the tunnel. Tanks have to have a certain pallet load limit. Everything makes sense. It's why you don't see above 100 tons because that could be the load limit for a standard load-bearing blah, blah, blah. That head cannon makes sense. There is no reason in the world for any industry to go, we're gonna make something ten percent bigger for arbitrarily no reason at all.
0: Especially if every drop ship in the galaxy already has their load well,
3: pods. It would, it, would set like, for... it would be like Ferrari going, we made a car that's twice as wide. And you'd go, But why? And they're like, Well, it's really fast. And I'm like, Well, where can I drive it? And they're like, Oh yeah. Whoops.
4: So it's kinda of like a Panamax Mac.
3: That's what I'm saying. Is like they they would have here are the dimensions, and here's the weight that can go in this thing. If you want to have something custom, it's going to be groundbound, like a lot of the Solaris crap that's just cobbled together from God knows what.
4: I mean, I, I love the fact that the, the Battletech lore is good enough that we can talk about it like it's real history and like it makes mm.
2: sense. Well, and that, to be honest, that speaks to what Herb and I really wanted to do and tried to do for 15 years is to make everything make sense. And the tripod was a conundrum for exactly what New Text was saying, because we had issues with that exact same idea. It's like there are just some things that just don't realistically work. Even when you're fudging laws of physics, like Star Wars lives in a slightly separate physics world and Battletech lives in a slightly separate physics world. And it was dumb. We didn't like it. We did what we could with it. We didn't make it a huge centerpiece of the lore. And when the click stuff, I mean, you'll notice when the click stuff went away, we didn't really talk about it much after that. I think when we kind of set that up because we wanted it as a prototype and you know a special weapon, and we left it at that. And obviously after we had freedom to run, we really didn't use them anymore. Now, I can't speak to after I left, but contextually, that's where we were at.
0: No, and maybe that's a good place to end this show is because of the fact that it kind of draws it around full circle because where we started was how real world realities and business realities were driving the creative side of Battletech. I mean, one of the things we were kicking around before the show is product runs. For example, a production run on a typical book is usually in the Sometimes single digit hundreds or single digit thousands. Yeah, you know,
4: I'm saying that the uh, the average sourcebook print run was three thousand. And yeah. Yeah. So like you know, I'm going to have to go pet my Comstar sourcebook now, knowing it's one of only three thousand that ever got printed.
0: Yeah, exactly. If these were numbered. They could probably do it all by hand and not have to count very high to get there. But you know, I, that's uh, kind of where I see us re arriving at now. Is even in the modern day of BattleTech. That marketing realities, that intellectual property realities, are still very much driving this game. You know, the existence of the super heavy mechs and why their mm-hmm. tripod mechs was a marketing decision more than a creative one.
2: And um, I will say too that that's also true in the products that actually do make it to the table. So why do you think that there's so many? mercenary handbooks and remastered handbooks and updated and revised versions of the mercenary handbook, because that's one of the things that people really love is the idea of the mercenary. So because well, you can make your
4: own, you, you can make right. your own unit with your own heraldry and your own yeah. backstory And Exactly. And, and, and that's you why you control the creative narrative in your game.
2: Mm-hmm. So people for a long time would decry, you know, why isn't there more clan books? You know, why not? Why aren't you doing a handbook for each of the clans, not just warden and crusader and you know, the reality is that you have to look at the sale reality. This one sold a thousand units, but they sold over five years to sell out. Whereas, you know, a Davian book sells two thousand units and it's gone in two months. Well, guess what more product is going to be put out? Davian, because that's it's easier
4: now with the internet and with Kickstarter to more quickly engage with your fan base and see what they want.
2: Yeah. So we were talking earlier about the Battletech clan invasion kickstarters. If you look at the majority of all of the tier goals and everything that's there, it's all miniature-based because they know that's what the buying public for that is going to be, that the attraction of the miniatures. It's not they threw lore stuff in there, but it's a small percentage based on everything else. Well, I'll tell and you so, what happened oh. was
4: the plastic mechs and the neoprene battle mats because I have kids.
2: Yeah.
4: I don't want to give my kids a paper map and a metal
2: Mac. You have to play to your market. You know, Randall was very open about this. When we did the handbook series, we did two. They were not great sellers. But the only reason they did the other three was because Randall was completist. For all those five factions, he wanted fair play for all of them, and that's why it took forever to get them all out. It took me four years to finally get Karita done because it was a quote unquote vanity project. It was always the last on the list to get in the queue. But again, you go back to what your market is, te- your audience and your market is telling you that's where you do your runs. And there are some people who get, you know, they get fixated on, okay, Boba Fett. Everyone gets fixated on Boba Fett. He was in one scene in the second, well, at the time, second movie, but he looked cool and everyone loved him. And so now look, we have Mandalorian and we have all the Clone Wars stuff that's all Mando based and armor, and blah, 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 blah. You go where your market and your audience is predominantly and everything else kind of tails with that. As much as we want to say that our world building and our canon is everything and the, the strength of the writing does all that. Yeah, it's really audience based. And they, you know that's that's the one thing I learned when working with Herb is, you know, first thing he told me when I joined as assistant developer is you're not going to be able to write what you really want to write unless it's really what the audience wants to, because ultimately what it comes down to is to make money, to sell stuff, to keep the game viable. You have to go with the audience. You have to write the stuff and put the stuff out where the audience is. And yeah, that's,
1: that's where it is. It in regards good. to all of that stuff, you actually had a bit more insight than I did. I mean, I, ha- I have the document still somewhere, the jihad document with all the details in there. But as far as where it went from there, yeah, that is all you, man. So, new
0: Tax, well, you spent a lot of time dominating this conversation. So, what, what can I say? I'm
3: very, very shy.
0: You are. You're a very <laughs> bashful person. This is why I'm going to guess you have to do your YouTube show alone. Because otherwise, it would be uh, somebody else talks battle tech. Well, probably, li- yeah. It'd be like Tex listens to Bob talk about battle tech. Yeah,
3: no, I, I could do that. I can whittle while
0: the people talk. It's it's a good way to pass the time. So you're a whittler. Okay, you're not the first person on the show that's been a whittler.
4: I had to become a whittler. Because I'm a Cub Scout den leader, and I had to teach the class on whittling. And so in order to teach the class on whittling, I had to learn how to whittle. So I can now make like a sharp stick.
0: Well, in my headcanon, new Texas is making bamboo traps, and that's a lot cooler. It is. I don't know what he's actually whittling, but that's what we're going to go with. That's what's true now. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm cutting a new grip for my 1911. So you're not going with Hoag. You're just making it yourself. Making myself. Yeah, I'm. I'm no. I'm not a terribly crafty person or terribly handy person. I have. Well, I said on the show before that one of the reasons I never got to miniature painting or miniature sculpting is because I have. Well, one, I don't have the patience, and two, I have micro tremors in my hands that keep me from being good at it. So right. you only need two coats of primer, and she's painted. Yeah, exactly. Well, a guy named Brodor on our show, he was giving me a walkthrough of how you can do with primer. A dip in something else and then you put a drill on it and put it in a bucket and just fire up the drill and apparently that spins it and blasts off the paint in such a way that it looks real or... I don't know. He was explaining it and he made it sound very simple and I didn't really follow it.
4: Have you ever like watch like the Battletech painting and customs group on Facebook? I'm always beyond humbled. I mean, one, I don't paint my max anymore because I just do not have time. But then I look like at the ones I did paint that I was all proud of where I actually did like a base coat and a dry brush and a wash, and I'm like,
0: yeah, no. I don't know. Texas paint and cuss is still a legend in my mind. It so, is.
4: Well, painting with white was very difficult.
0: So anyway, be sure to check out. New tax at well, it's not talks dot com, or is it? No, you know, it I didn't is, think so. Uh, YouTube,
3: just, just yeah, you can you can use the Google box and type. Yeah, in Tech well, Battletech.
0: you'll find me. We will also put a direct link in the show notes. So if you're too lazy to use Google, just go to feartheboot.com, and you'll find it there.
4: Totally worth it, by the way. If you didn't know that there could be like a three-hour documentary on Battletech followed by a two-hour documentary on Battletech followed by another two-hour documentary on Battletech, <laughs> it's time well spent. Honestly, I- I've watched it all. And if <laughs> he wants to drop the Snyder Cut, I'm okay with that.
2: And I will drop this here, Text: I still have all of my original rewrite drafts from where's of Breathing
3: from 2001. That could be interesting reading.
1: And the story have, behind
0: it is crazy. I, you also need to do some dramatic readings. Chris is married and one of the things he wooed his now wife with was an in-character BattleTech love letter.
1: Oh that's just legendary. We did we did, uh, we did exchange and she wrote back in character as well. Yes. I was on duty on the Clan front lines and she was back at home on New Aragon and uh, <laughs> we did we exchange letters. Uh, speaking of, uh, of of BattleTech relics and in inside documents, I also have from the BattleTech cartoon all of the world universe drawings and write-ups and and initial, you know, illustrations and, and background uh, material
0: Oh the cartoon. Yes. Set fire to your house?
1: So So (laughs) if
4: if Nick from Sarna.net is listening, I know I promised to scan all my MechForce North America (laughs) magazines and I've only gotten around to one of them. I promise one of these days I'm going to scan the rest of my MechForce magazines and get them into Sarna.
2: So one last example of real world impacting content. Sure. Shoot. This I think this is a nice way to end it. So back when the Battle Corps was still operational and Steve Mohan and I were trying to figure out how to introduce the Legionnaire mech, which was one of the first Dark Age mechs that was released in the Canon line. So he and I talked for a long time and what I opted to do, and he, he worked with me on this is my grandfather and my grandmother, Mildred and Bob, they were married 70 years and uh, he is a three war vet. He was a World War two Korean, and Vietnam vet. And my grandmother is a stalwart woman who had they had seven kids. My mom is the oldest of, of seven. But anyway, their love story was really neat to me because they wrote to each other all the time when he was in Korea and Vietnam. And we decided to share part the lead up to the Legionnaire story was a Battle Corps exclusive short short story series of journals. And they were love basically general love letters from Mildred to Bob the Tech and Bob the Tech to Mildred the nurse, and which is very similar to what real life what they were doing. My, my grandfather was in security, but still. And he used their names. And I shared that with my grandfather and my grandmother way back when it came out and just walked them through because they had no idea about you know what's this. Battle tech thing but I shared the thing and I, I let them read Steve's words for them and I don't think there's a copy out anymore about the series but it was so great because it led up to the the real story which was you know about the mech but that was something and I do this a lot with things around my my real life I incorporate into my writing and, and into the world building and that was a really nice way to do that well the reason I'm mentioning that is because My grandfather passed away in November of last year from his third set of pancreatic cancer. He was also an Agent orange victim. So he passed away in November. And then my grandmother, his wife, Mildred passed away two weeks ago. And the one thing that I remember is being one of the fond memories that I have is being able to sit with them 10 years ago and share this entire story with them and my grandfather looking at me and just saying, I don't know what any of that is, but I'm glad that my story and her story were told in a way that these kids might called all of us kids that you kids will remember and, and use as a, a focal point for life. And that was just like the coolest thing. But it was just the, the thing I just remembered when I found out that she had passed that it was just, I don't know, I, I don't even know how to, to trail from that. It's just it was so cool, and it's just it's a small thing. But even the biggest things in our own lives can have impact on how we write. It's not just corporate overlords saying you must do this. It's also down to the little things in, in the writing process. You no, know, Chris has tons of stories where you know he's got things that happen to him that you know ultimately have that impact in the writing, and and I could share other stories that that's the most poignant one. I have yeah, other.
0: I think there's there is a moral in that, which is something that we touched on man, I don't even remember when and somewhere back in our show's run, which is the fact that there is no such thing as true fiction. Yeah. That all fiction is derivative from reality, that because we cannot create except based on our own experiences and interpretations. And so when you are reading game fiction or your favorite novel or whatever the case is, you may never hear the stories, but everything that is in there, was inspired from something. Everything that is in there came from something. Every story you have read has a far longer story behind it. And I, I think in many ways that has been the punchline of this episode. So, once again, a big thank you to everyone on a roundtable for joining us. A thank you to you folks at home who stuck with us through this. Check the show notes for links, and we will catch you guys next time. i